Welcome to What's Brewing CISFA. What's Brewing CISFA is a podcast produced for the California Community College's Student Financial Aid Administrators Association. I'm your host, Dennis Schrader. I serve as the 2021-2022 CISFA past president. Although this episode is being recorded on a Friday, it's our normal Tuesday news show. So again, it's just me and you, and Dana is off doing other things. Uh, so we'll have a regular show also taped today with Dana, but for now it's just me and you. Let's get the show started. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of What's Brewing Sisva. Let's start this off with our first cups. And I can actually say it's my first cup here and it actually is coffee here in the office. I've got some caribou from, I can't remember which K-cup that is from who, uh, but it's not too bad. So, yeah, I apologize to everyone that was looking for the Tuesday episode. Maybe on a Tuesday. I know I've been doing some on Wednesday. Uh, but it's been that kind of week where uh, time got away from me and I wasn't able to get the episode out. So I'm actually recording back to back this one on my own while Dana, my co-host, is busy doing some other office things today. And then I'll record with Dana <clears throat> in a little bit and we'll put these both out today in sequence uh, the news hour, half hour <laughs> right now, and then we'll have the uh, uh, open for interpretation show with Dana. Uh, we'll see what kind of topics we cover. So with news, let's get going right ahead on uh, what's going on in the news. Luckily, we're back into having some things to talk about in higher ed. So first out, an announcement from federal student aid, uh, a general announcement here, an electronic announcement, general number 22-24 about higher education emergency relief fund annual reporting is due May 6. Today is May 6, everybody. So this was a notification sent out at the end of last week. Just as a reminder that HERF, H-E-E-R-F, our higher education emergency relief fund annual performance reports, APRs, must be completed and submitted to the department by, in a sense, before midnight Eastern time today. This covers activities funded between January 1st and December 31st of 2021 and are in addition to requirements to publicly post our quarterly HERF reports. Reporting must be submitted through the data collection portal for this, everyone. Institutions that fail will lose access to HERF grant funds as a result of noncompliance. So we'll see if that part sticks, uh, you know, but hopefully everyone, all the schools out there, will get their reporting done. And again, it's only through the end of 2021. So if you've done other disbursements of uh, emergency grants as students in the spring, you're off the hook for now. But it is kind of an annual thing. Moving on in the federal world, uh, we have here, this is, uh, in a sense, a dear colleague letter uh, with an update so this is a dear colleague letter that dates back to January 29, 2021, and it was a letter 21-02. And the subject is uh, on this update here. It was an update on the use of professional judgment by financial aid administrators. And in short, the summary says, you know, the letter that they're sending out is a reminder of two financial aid administrators of our ability to use professional judgment in a documented way when determining eligibility for students aid eligibility, and it encourages us to consider special circumstances that may arise 
for students and families due to the ongoing pandemic. Uh, in particular, you know, really what we're looking at when it affects, you know, work maybe because there's unemployment or a reduction in the amount of work and earnings by a family. So as it notes, other than statutory and regulatory requirements uh, included in the document, the contents of the guidance do not have the force and effect of law and are meant not meant to bind the public. You know, that's just standard boilerplate on these things. This is a reminder to all my colleagues. Again, hopefully we have been doing as requested as we always had before, but also maybe making that extra push to let students know about that if they have changes in their circumstances, income, now they're unemployed, uh, loss of income in the family, etc., that we address those types of issues with our students so that, again, it may make a difference in their aid eligibility. Because if you don't know, for those for my non-financial aid friends out there, when you do something like the federal aid form, the FAFSA, usually comes out in October of a year for the, and you're doing the form in a sense for the next fall. So like the FAFSA that came out October 2021 would be for the fall of 2022 semester for aid eligibility. It's asking for income from 2020. So it's kind of like a three year cycle here. Income from 2020 for a FAFSA that comes out in the fall of 2021 that you're applying to college to start in fall of 2022. That's a big gap, obviously. You know, it could be two years between you attending school and what income is being used to determine eligibility. So it is definitely worthwhile that if those circumstances have gone south, that our students talk to us because we can, in a sense, through professional judgment, which is written into the laws, basically allowing schools to do certain things to adjust for these kind of circumstances. We can look at these kind of income changes and such and plug them into the formula, deem it as such as long as we got it documented, and then move forward and, again, adjust a student's aid eligibility. We've definitely had more of that during the pandemic. So follow-up, yeah, just read up on this uh Update to the a Dear Colleague letter. Now I'm going to have links to all these things in the show notes. From the California Student Aid Commission, they put out a special alert last week, number 2022-29, and it's about upcoming virtual training events in the month of May. So just as a reminder, and actually in the June, it should say June it looks like, uh, so they have Cal Grant regional trainings going on, again, virtually. And so they have their standard uh, student aid commission updates with institutional eligibility, a general Cal Grant overview, and a little bit on the California Dream Act application. They've got an event coming up Monday, June 20th in the afternoon. They have a separate one on the Tuesday right thereafter that goes into more details about disbursements and payments payment scenarios, navigating web grants, reports and tools, and other things. And then they have a separate one on Wednesday in the afternoon. These are all great afternoon sessions, a couple hours, on foster youth programs and a middle-class scholarship. Now, the upcoming ones that they do have, they do have one coming up next week on Tuesday in the afternoon, programs for foster youth. And this is for high school counselors and college financial aid administrators. Uh, again, free all of these things. 
they have another one on Tuesday, May 17th. Uh, and this will be on Learning Aligned Employment Program Overview. This is the LAEP program that just came out. And this is, again, for public universities and colleges, including community colleges. So you definitely want to look into that. I'll let you know there's other things coming up on their Dreamer Service Incentive Grant uh, on May 20th and Cal Grant Payment Codes and Scenarios on May 26th. So keep those in mind. Definitely worthwhile uh, keeping up. And that's just something to tell all my colleagues. If you're not signed up to get the emails that tell you when the special alerts or the operations memos come out, get on that list. Get on those lists. And you can do that through the Student Aid Commission website. If you drill down into, uh, you know, colleges and below that, you'll find how to get into the communication realm so that you get an email every time a new special alert or ops memo comes out. That's all I have from Student Aid Commission this week. We do have a little bit of updates from our national partners there, NASFA. So they had an article just put out by Hugh Ferguson, one of their staff reporters, recently about the approval process for Pell-eligible prison education programs. Um, we'll get a detailed preview. So as, as he starts off his article here, with the impending restoration of Pell Grants for incarcerated individuals becoming closer to reality through you know, Congress and regulatory work. Higher education stakeholders ranging from colleges and accreditors to corrections agencies and the Department of Ed need to begin preparations to ensure program expansion reaches those eligible students. So what happens here is a new report came out from a, a think tank, the Center for American Progress, and they've been tracking regulata regulatory changes made through the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, Remember, that was, uh, you know, not too long ago. And this act, in a sense, restored Pell Grant eligibility for incarcerated students who were previously restricted from accessing grants. Since 1994, there was a ban. Uh, so seeking to provide uh, higher ed stakeholders with details on this. So the report was published just, published just before Department of Ed announced third round of its second chance Pell experiment which will make a total of 200 institutions of higher education eligible to participate. So this is just like the next step beyond that. Uh, and so, you know, according to the report, as many as 463,000 Pell Grant eligible incarcerated individuals could benefit from this new program. Definitely worthwhile reading. Uh, and again, get up to date on something you and your school may be doing or working with, especially if you've got, um, uh, you know, incarcerated students in your area because you have, you know, state, local prisons, etc. Now, beyond NASFA, this was something that uh, got shared quite a bit among my colleagues uh, when it came out, but I have an article here from The Markup, which I'm not really sure what this all is. I think it's all about big tech is what it sounds like. So, but it was an interesting one uh, about called it's under their pixel hunt uh, category of articles or series here. And it's uh, the name of the article is pretty straightforward here. Applied for student aid online. Facebook saw you. So according to this, the FAFSA form included code that sent personal information back to Facebook. So this article came out on April 28th. And this was very interesting. Uh, hopefully this is not in discourage anyone because they fixed this issue since. 
But apparently here, for many prospective students applying for Adon, you know, has meant sharing personal data with Facebook unbeknownst to them and their parents, according to the markup. Uh, information included first and last names, email addresses, and zip codes. So the markup uh, talked to Department Ed about this practice um, as far as how this worked, and it's since they've turned off what this is. Apparently there is code, and there was, and the markup found code embedded in the website, the FAFSA website, uh, was automatically sent, uh, sent some data off to Facebook. The data was being collected even if the visitor site did not have a Facebook account uh, and began before the user logged in at the FAFSA website. So, you know, according to this here, uh, what we have here is that it said part of a advertising campaign, they changed these tracking set settings. And so inadvertently caused some student aid user information that falls outside our normal collection efforts uh, to be tracked. So I guess it has something to do with a, a Facebook pixel. So it's the meta pixel which is the coding question here, as it says uh, in this article, is present on many websites and marketed to businesses and organizations as a way to track online visitors. So it seems like it has a, a useful effect probably. So when a website uses the code, data on the web visitor is sent to Facebook and can be used by the business or organization to find an audience for its ads. Facebook retains the data and can use it for its own advertising purposes, although it's not clear as it says what those purposes might be. So there's a pixel according to this. The pixel is uh, pervasive on the web, as they say. One prime example of the sort of tracking technology leads a pair of shoes you looked at to haunt you across the Internet, or in the case, Facebook and Instagram. I think we all know about that and how cookies and other things like that work. You know, you look for, uh, again, you look for one type of shoe, and then suddenly every time you're on a search site or on a, uh, a mega news site or something like that. Uh, all the ads seem to be pointed towards that one thing. So uh, don't get scared of it. Um, but just to let you know, yes, some of this was being tracked and has now since been uh, untracked. So interesting article. Uh, definitely worth the read. I'll give you a link to this one too. But before we continue on, I think we need a little music get us through our last few articles for the day. And just like that, we're back for what else could it be than our second cups. I really didn't have time to run off and get another cup. I probably shouldn't have two cups of coffee, especially seeing, at least at this point, seeing that I'm going to be recording another pod in a few minutes when this one ends with Dana. So I better not, that'd be like four cups of coffee. But for you out there, everyone get your second cup. Next article I have comes from the Higher Ed Dive website, highereddive.com. And it goes to something I think we all kind of knew. FAFSA completion falls about 9% from previous year, according to a report here. So about 9% fewer students have completed the FAFSA form as of the end of March than had done so at the same point last year, according to uh, data from the National College Attainment Network, or NCAN. 
This amounts to a little over 870,000 fewer students filing the FAFSA. So now this is driven by a decline in FAFSA renewals. That's where a sense a student did the FAFSA the year before. And when they log into the site to do their next FAFSA after October 1st, they kind of port over a lot of their information from the prior year. So it's not like you're starting from scratch, but those are what we call FAFSA renewals. Students, you know, who are going to be continuing on with school and that would make sense. But according to this, this was driven, this decline in FAFSA renewals as the share of new FAFSA filers rose, according to NCAN. Completions among students already enrolled in college fell out by about 12% from last year or 880,000 plus fewer students renewing. Renewals among enrolled students eligible for Pell Grants, a proxy for, you know, low-income status, dropped by more than 15% or a little over 545,000 students. So NCAN said the data, which the Office of Federal Student Aid provided, suggests very bad news in the short term for college student retention, persistence, and completion rates. And really, when you think about it, uh, it would make sense that if all these students were completing and graduating, yeah, you would have some fall off in renewal numbers, possibly, because those students would not be renewing. But we're talking about if you're going to college for four years or more, including graduate school, you'd be filling out that renewal FAFSA three, four, five years in a row after you've done your initial FAFSA for your first year. So thinking about the way it cycles, that number shouldn't really go down too, too much because every year you have new ones coming in, and others leaving. Unless we suddenly had a mass amount of students graduate that suddenly cleared the slate of students who've been in college, let's say five or six or seven years, but I don't think that's the case. I think we do have a case of students not persisting and retain, being retained and, and completing. So, you know, as it says here, as their dive insights from this, from the higher ed dive, you know, the data means colleges should expect fewer students to enroll for the coming academic year, according to this. Uh, this would further heighten enrollment challenges for the higher ed sector in general, as we all know that many of our schools are down quite a bit. So we did, you know, in fall 2021 compared to two years ago, we're over a million or close to a million students less doing undergraduate studies. So a very good article. It's a very good website if you didn't know about higher ed dive. It's a little like the Chronicle for Higher, Higher Ed, or Inside Higher Ed, in that they have a, a good amount of reporting and also some opinion pieces on things, not always about financial aid, but things relative to what we do. On to another article here from one of my favorite websites, calmatters.org, dealing with all things about California. Starting right off on the college beat Who's missing from California's community colleges? And so in summary, as it says here, California community colleges enrollment plummeted during the pandemic. Here are the stories of some of the students who left. And so, you know, it's mostly anecdotal information, but, you know, as it says here, you know, for example, here's a little data part to it. One out of four prospective students surveyed in December by the state chancellor's office said they didn't enroll because of full-time work. A big factor holding students back was affordability, with about 43% of those 400 prospective students surveyed saying that even though the state's community college tuition is among the lowest in the country, I think we're really the lowest, at 
Only $46 per unit. How could we not be? It's still too expensive to pursue a degree. So that kind of makes sense, you know, the work thing. I think we see this in almost everything from going to college to finding applicants for jobs. Uh, the markets are kind of competitive, and people rather take $15 or more, depending upon where you live, if offered, than go to college at this time. Again, cost of living going up. College aid covers some of your cost of attendance and cost of living, but it's not meant to be a replacement for a full-time job. There's not that kind of money available. So uh, there's some very good, interesting stories here about students, why they may have dropped out. Uh, and again, it's, you know, this is why going to college is such a tough question to answer for any individual, whether 18 or 80, as far as whether, is this the right time to do it? You know, there's many reasons why 18 and 19 year olds ought to do it right out of high school including the fact that you're the most academically prepared as you probably will be. Unless you were not so good in high school, then maybe you need some preparation before you go off. But then again, that's what community colleges do well, do very well. But it could also be a case of work, supporting a family. If you suddenly have a family when you're young, those kind of things could obviously impact whether it's the right time to go. And then later in life, it's the same thing. It's one of the reasons why we say go and get it done sooner than later, because as soon as you might be married or have a family you're supporting or have other things like that going on in life, it might be hard to take the time away to go to school. Now, we may have, in a sense, solved some of this in a causality modality here of, you know, the pandemic caused most schools to go to online instruction and stick with it that now going to college might be easier in that way. You know, short-term classes, online classes, what we call asynchronous classes, where it's not a set schedule like you would have when you come to campus and you go to class Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 9 to 11 in the morning. These asynchronous is kind of what it means. It's not synchronized to a calendar. You have to do so much work maybe per week, but at the same time, it's not like you have to be at a class at a given time. So those kind of things open up opportunity. Students can study at night or study in, uh, early in the day or later in the day according to their work schedules and family th commitments. So pretty interesting article. Definitely worth reading. Uh, get some different perspectives from students across the spectrum as far as why they may not be returning to school uh, or why they've dropped out. So calmatters.org, I'll give you the direct link. Down to the last couple articles here. The Washington Post out of Washington, D.C. has an interesting article of one of those things that uh, I like to keep up on. And this one is about uh, schools that have many certificate programs that don't pay off, but colleges want to keep them. So as it says here, <clears throat> the byline, institutions are quietly resisting a proposal to strip federal funding from low payoff programs. <laughs> so what this amounts to is, you know, we have degree programs and the Department of Ed, it's not that they don't care, but in general, if you're an associate degree or higher, 
associate degree or bachelor degree, there's not a whole lot of tracking to see outcomes. Anything under an associate degree, what we call certificate programs, though, for the last 10 years or more, there's been this need to look at whether or not they are gainful employment programs. In other words, if I'm doing a short-term program, is there gainful employment tied to that that show that that certificate was worth whatever the investment was for it? So there's been all that kind of look at everything from health services to uh, automotive tech to just you name it out there. So it's interesting, you know, this is here again, the fact that certificates are the fastest growing, you know, kind of credential in higher ed right now. And it's supposed to be a solution, you know, try towards, you know, getting people trained quickly, you know, sometimes a year, year and a half program and into the workforce when you maybe a degree is too much work. Uh, and time away from work that students don't want to do. So the article talks about, you know, how some certificates pay off well. On average, workers with certificates earn about 20% more than those only with a high school education, and this is according to uh, Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce uh, Research. But new research from the National Student Legal Defense Network and scholars at George Washington University show that nearly two-thirds of undergraduate certificate programs left their students worse off than a typical high school graduate, making an average of less than $25,000 per year. This is using data now from 2015, so it's uh, new as far as in federal reporting circumstances, but kind of old otherwise. Now, according to this, though, and it's something to keep in mind and something, you know, something we can have a longer discussion on. While most of the failing certificate programs are at for-profit colleges, and again, they've been long you know, longly criticized for leaving students with low earnings and sometimes high debt, nearly a quarter of these type of certificate programs are at public colleges and universities. And I'm going to say most likely at community colleges. So, you know, Department of Ed has proposed regulations that sets similar earnings thresholds for career certificate programs in every sector and for all degree programs at for-profits. Uh, so I'm not going to go more into this article. I want you to read it. I think it's interesting. I think it's a topic that will continue to circle around. And again, as I've said, I have how many books? Uh, five or six about will college pay off, the price you pay for college. And again, you know, the constant look to change higher education to be more responsive and useful so that we don't have this issue of having programs that cost more than the return to the student is. Sometimes it's the nature of the type of work they want to do. Sometimes it's the cost of the program. Sometimes it's both of those creating a tornado of just pure out problems. So definitely worth reading from Washington Post. I think you can get in for free because I did, uh, but it might be one of those cases that you only get so many free articles in a month. Be wise in your choosing. The last item to report, this is news related to the L.A. Community College District that I work for, So, and a local other district. Coming from the Glendale News Press, just a matter of a couple weeks ago, Glendale Community College uh, Board of Trustees there names their new superintendent slash president. So because they're a one college district, 
unlike the LA Community College District, in a sense they have just one college in a single district. They have a, a double title there, superintendent for the district and president of the college, uh, whereas LA would have some of those split, split up. You know, we have presidents on every college, and at the district we have what we call our chancellor. So the Glendale Community College Board of Trustees recently named Dr. Ryan Corner the district's next superintendent and president after doing a research, uh, doing a surgery, placed a retiring David VR. So he is currently, and this is why I bring up the article, uh, Dr. Corner currently serves as Vice Chancellor of Educational Services and Institutional Effectiveness for the Los Angeles Community College District. And so I bring it up because I, uh, I think it's great news. I mean, it's horrible to lose him to our district because Dr. Corner has been a, uh, a centerpiece, not a corner piece, a centerpiece to keeping students up front in all our decisions. Uh, he works uh, hard on behalf of students, but he works hard also on behalf of everyone in student services. He's come to many meetings that I've been at at district. He'll be missed, but I think this is a great opportunity for him to take all those years of his work with us and uh, beforehand and put it to use at Glendale Community College, one of our neighboring schools. They got very lucky, and so I'm very happy for them and for him. So congratulations to Dr. Corner, who leaves us at the end of June so he can start at Glendale Community College. That's about all for the news. Let's roll ourselves out of this segment and into our last part here with a little bit of music. like that what are we back for everyone well if my cup is empty enough the last sip that is really a loud sound effect if you do not like this sound effect please write to the show and we'll replace it so uh we are at the last part of the show i'm gonna try to get you out here i thought uh this show was running short it's running long who could have guessed so some quick i dare you to's Coming from the music scene, I went down to the local music store here in the Hollywood area, that, closer to where I live, uh, and bought some uh, CDs. If you forgot what those are, those are compact discs. They hold digital data that turns into music if you do it right. I actually bought one that I did not know is a combo. It's one of these hybrid discs that does. It's got a CD layer. It's got a super audio CD layer. And it may have had an MQA encoded layer. So some very interesting things in the music front. We can talk high-end audio and audiophile stuff later. But I found two new albums from one of my favorite artists, Bill Evans, a jazz pianist, passed away a number of years ago. But uh, the family, the the family estate continues to release found or known uh, and stored tapes of uh, they replace it you know out as cds they find these tapes of recorded concerts sometimes radio broadcasts from europe and such so again i've been buying those up double disc setups two per year almost uh, for the last few years this year the releases are uh the morning glory the 1973 concert at the titro grand rex and then another one at uh called inner spirit the 1979 concert at the titro general in San Martin. So a couple live concerts coming out, double disc setups from 
Bill Evans. Definitely worthwhile listening to if you're into piano jazz. Those are my, I dare you to, you can only expect that Dana will have some interesting ones when we record the next show later today and get these both out to you. But that's all we have time for today. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning in. Keep in mind, What's Brewing Ceasefire is a production of Studio 1051, a creative collaboration of me and Dana Yarbrough. This has been episode number 180, recorded Friday morning of May 6, 2022. Have a great day and still have a great week and weekend.